today we're going to do our third installment of the Stride for the Love of Running series. We're super excited for this. Uh, we're taking advantage of some of the uh, you know current current situations going on globally, and we're trying to provide more content out there. So my name is Evan. I've been hosting this the past uh, couple days, and we're really excited to uh, keep keep this thing rolling here. Um, today I'm going to be talking about my experience at the U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials. I ran that on February 29th, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to kind of show off a little bit of the data. I didn't have the greatest race. I can still talk about my experience there, uh, but I can talk about specifically heading into the trials, how um, you can plan, execute, and reflect, and then also after um, a, a race for anybody or after a situation for anybody, uh, different strategies that you can use to recover, refocus, and regroup. Um, so I'll give things just uh, one more second here to uh, go through, and then I think we should be all good. Okay, cool. Um, so uh, producer Angus, if you can uh, load up my uh, thing here, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to be talking about planning, executing, and reflecting. Um, so specifically, there are going to be a couple components here that I'll go through. Uh, if you have any questions along the way, please drop them in the uh, chat live stream uh, on, on YouTube. Uh, producer Angus will uh, send them my way. We'll be doing uh, the last slide will be for um, all of the questions and answers here. So um, now that we're situated, situated, uh, we're going to get going. So um, topics today, the Olympic marathon trials, uh, specifically my experience, kind of how I got there. Uh, talking a little bit more about my running, and then going to talk about recovering, regrouping, and refocusing. How can you you actually use that? Some of my tips for that. Um, planning, executing, and reflecting, uh, kind of three-part series on how you can tackle any sort of goal. And then uh, lastly, wrapping it up with a question and answer. Um, so what is it like to run at the Olympic trials? Uh, I wanted to put together uh, you know, some cool flashy pictures here, but I thought that just talking about it would be um, the, the best kind of way. So uh, me as a runner, um, I started running in uh, middle school. My dad was a uh, avid marathoner back in the day. He ran Boston. He uh, grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm originally from Ohio. And so um, I, I had a love of running at a young age. I remember in um, 1996 um, for the Atlanta game, seeing the Olympic or the, the Olympic torch actually go by the top of my street. So that was super cool. Um, I remember we still have uh, Coke uh, bottles from that, uh, that, that Olympiad. Uh, that was in Atlanta because Coke is based in Atlanta. And it just the, the Olympics were instilled in the, the love of running were instilled uh, on me at a very young age. And so um, I grew up uh, loving running. I started running in middle school for my middle school, ran in high school. Um, in high school, I ran uh, four minutes and 34 seconds for the 1600. I ran uh, nine minutes, 43 seconds for the 3,200, which is about two miles. And the 5K ran 1551 for cross country. And so um, I wasn't great. I wasn't terrible. Uh, but that got me enough uh, of, of a performance uh, to be recognized and be able to walk on at my local college. It's The Ohio State University. I don't usually say the, but people call it The Ohio State University. And so I got to walk on there. And that means that I wasn't a scholarship athlete, but I was good enough to get a spot on the team. And so my freshman year, uh, I ran cross country there, got hurt like all freshmen do because I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't recovering, I wasn't focusing on running, I was just enjoying my freshman year um, in college. I started taking things a lot more seriously, started running 
um, a bit more that summer, came back. The coach left after my freshman year. My sophomore year, a new coach came in. I ran uh, 32-12 for the 10K and then got cut from the team. And so um, I was pretty devastated. I had loved running my whole life. Like, like I said, grew up running. And I was told that, you know, hey, you're not good enough anymore. Um, you, you're, you're cut off the team uh, because I couldn't run fast enough. And so that really, um, you know, put me down for a, a brief moment. But then I used that experience to kind of shape my transition to the roads and started doing road racing and training myself. So um, this will be kind, kind of relevant uh, the, the, the next slide, basically. So um, I started running on the roads, started improving my performance by just being really serious and really dedicated. And so uh, that was 2012. I ran my first half marathon in 2014. I ran 69.07 in the half marathon. The next year I ran my first marathon. I ran 231.58 for the marathon. And then two years after that, I ran 218.19 in the marathon. So there's a ton of hard work there. Um, a ton of focus, a ton of dedication to running, but that 218-19 marathon punched my ticket to the 2020 U.S. Olympic Marathon Trials. Uh, it was my second marathon. I had done, um, you know, a ton of hard work up to that point, and I didn't really grasp the the gravity of the situation. I didn't really realize how important it was until I reflected back on, hey, I'll be going to the Olympic Trials, something I had, you know, dreamed about doing as a kid. And my my dad told me, hey, you know, someday if you get good enough, you can definitely. Um, make the Olympic trials. And so uh, what it's like to run at the Olympic trials. Um, it was probably the coolest experience that I've ever had in my life. Um, just being there, seeing all of the other runners in the sport um, and just being able to relate in the running world with all of the other high level performers. Uh, there was very, very cool. You know, you get in an elevator and all of a sudden you're standing next to somebody that's been at a world championship, somebody that has a world championship medal, somebody that's been to the Olympics, just Tons of tons of uh, talent that were um, kind of loaded uh, in 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 that weekend. So um, my experience with the Olympic trials wasn't the greatest. I was hurt the six weeks going into it, so unfortunately I had to um, stop due to injury at mile 21. But I want to talk about um, you know a, a better situation at the Olympic trials. My fiance is a good runner. She uses Stride. Um, she had a great buildup, and I want to share her data and her run at the Olympic trials because it provides a little bit more. Um, practical application of the things I wanted to talk about today. So um, specifically after the trials, I can talk about this this part for me. So recovering after marathon is in quotes because this is very relevant for um, the marathon immediately. Um, you know, kind of kind of hobbling. Like I said, I um, you know dropped out at 21 because my knee hurt very badly. But immediately I said, okay, you know, even if I got the finish, uh, I, I should focus on recovery. So immediately I changed my shoes. I put warm clothes on. I got water and I got something in my body. So they they had a ton of uh, food that was there at the um, you know the 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 tent at the finish line. And so I was able to uh, you know kind of get get fuel in my body, make sure I got a lot of fluids. Um, Immediately, you don't necessarily want to just sit down. Uh, you know, this is a very, very popular thing at a marathon finish line. You see people's legs give out underneath them. But immediately, uh, for for recovery, the best thing to do is just keep moving, try and refuel and replenish your body as best you can. The next day, uh, the next day in Atlanta, we were able to go walk around a little bit in the morning. Um, in the past, I had been somebody that has been able to run the next day after a marathon, and I don't think it's the smartest idea. Um, sometimes when you're still riding that, you know, uh, high energy that you have from the marathon, it's very easy to just say, okay, you know what, I'm going to, 
I'm going to just go out on an easy, you know, 30 minute jog. That was me in the past. Me now said, okay, I'm just going to walk around as much as I can. Um, so the next day started running. Uh, the, the advice here that I'm trying to talk about gets a little bit more practical with the next week. So a couple of things you can do the next week, um, add in a little bit of uh, body weight motion circuits and add in a little bit of rope stretching. Um, this is going to be something I'll talk about a little bit later in terms of uh, accountability, but the next week it's okay to start being a little bit more active. The next two weeks, you can start doing some cross training. You can start uh, you know, probably feeling better because it's somewhere between seven to 14 days of, uh, you know, the time since you beat your legs into submission and then starting to run again. This is always the big question mark with people after a marathon. Um, like I mentioned, I've been able to run eight miles uh, the day after a marathon and feel pretty okay. But then the the negative effects of that don't uh, or outweigh the any potential positives that you get. So you're not really gaining any fitness um, running the next day, you're just hindering some of the recovery. So there's a ton of great advice out there. Um, but starting to run again, for me, in my situation, I took two weeks completely off. Uh, my fiance took two weeks completely off as well. And now we're starting to run again. So this race was at the very end of uh, February in Atlanta. And now it's the middle of March heading towards the end of the March. So now it's okay to get that green light to, to start to run again. So refocus, um, the, the three big things here are recover, refocus, and regroup. So talking about refocus, after any race, um, I think it's really, really important, if you can, to actually keep a uh, you know physical interaction of your thoughts. So whether that's typing on your phone, writing down on paper, um, you know, entering on a on a running log, going to the Stride app and leaving a note in there attached to the uh, race is a totally fine thing to do. Um, but here are some of the, the the points that I want to visit for refocusing, and this is for any race scenario. So um, the first point here is what was your focus? So I think it's actually really important to take a step back before race, before the race day and say, okay, what was my focus? What was I actually trying to achieve at this race or this effort? It doesn't necessarily even have to be a race. It could be, you know, if you're doing a time trial or if you're just in a good block of training after you finish that, a point, uh, the number one point for refocusing that I have is what was your focus? So let's say your focus heading into a race was to solely make it through, um, to you know just not blow up, not have to stop and walk. It's perfectly okay to go back and just realize what your actual focus was because this will help um, for 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 one of the later points here. So the number two point: How did you do? So just say, okay, let me look at my performance. How did I actually do? And so that could be you know placed. You could have finish top three at the Olympic trials and be punching your ticket to the uh, 2020 US Olympic team. Uh, it could be, hey, I PR'd, how much did I PR by? How did I actually do? Uh, the number three point, what can you change? So talking about change uh, from a focus standpoint is realizing that, you know, you have what was your focus, you know, before the race? How did you do in the present moment? And then what can you change? What can you change going forward? That is a part of focusing. So you have these three kind of timelines that you can actually look at and you can understand how you did, what was your focus before how you did, and then after how you did, how can you actually change for the future? Uh, how did you deal with the things you couldn't change? So this is, again, talking about during the present moment, what can you actually uh you know, do in the present moment to deal with the things that you had no control of. So was it windy? Was it too hot? Did you not get a lot of sleep? Because the people next to you in your hotel room were up partying until 4 a.m. Um, that, that's 
probably happened to to some people traveling out of town for a race. Um, did you have too much nervous energy? Did you wear um, you know shoes that you thought were good, and then all of a sudden during the middle of the race you you couldn't you literally couldn't change your shoes? But how did you deal with that sort of thing that you could not change? Um, this fifth point here is probably my most important and one of the things that I've found, uh, you know, to be the most helpful and in, in, in the best for me is how would you like to imagine for next time? So when I ran my first marathon in 2015, like I said, I ran 231.58. I was on 225 pace through 18 miles. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, the marathon caught up with me and I, I hit the wall at 18 miles and I had to trot it in and finish in uh, 231. So obviously not the performance I was hoping for, but what would you like to imagine for next time? Every single run after that point, there was some time that I imagined crossing the line in under two hours and 19 minutes for my next marathon. Every single run. I'm a huge believer in visualization. And I don't think just because you can imagine something, it's necessarily going to happen. But what would you like to imagine for next time? I think it is so, so vital to have a positive visualization when it comes to expecting your performance for the next time. If it makes you happy to just reenact the last 100 meters um, in your mind of, of your next goal race, I would 100% say go do that. I'm a huge believer in this kind of uh, positive line of thinking. But there was not any run that I did not imagine crossing the line in under two hours and 19 minutes. And then when it actually came, I was like, oh, yeah. I've, I've done this before in my head, literally hundreds and thousands of times I've imagined performing to this level and it just felt real to me going into it. So, so I achieved it. So um, that is my fifth point. That's probably my favorite point. I could probably do a, a full hour podcast about that sort of self-belief. Um, what's your best case scenario? So talking about refocusing um, is kind of bringing your mind in a little bit closer. So what's your best case scenario for next time? Uh, and then the last point, what can you control? So thinking back to the things that you could control. So the, the, the point previous, how did you deal with the things you couldn't change? This is on the flip side. What can you actually control? Could you control your nutrition better? Could you control the shoes that you wore? Could you control your, your pacing strategy? So what power target you had? Could you control, you know, maybe the, the clothes that you were wearing? Could you control, you know, breakfast, um, the morning of dinner, the night before? So just focusing on these different points, I think, are a kind of all-encompassing, um, you know, basically large overview of how you can actually have success in terms of refocusing at any race. The, the, the second point here, the second R, is regroup. Um, Actionable goals. Uh, actionable is a word that uh, you know gets tossed around the stride office because it's something that we operate very, very highly off of. But actionable goals, things that you can actually act on, and things that you can actually do, uh, are are huge. So let's say you uh, you know you you kind of refocus and you say, what can you change? Uh, so, so so that point of saying, what can you change um, for the next time? for when it comes to creating actionable goals here in the, the regrouping, let's say that the things that you think you can change are running more hills. You think that you can add in core work three times a week and you think that you can add in um, some more cross training. So uh, you know maybe you wanna head to the swimming pool once a week and add that in. Create something that is actually actionable, not say I wanna swim seven days a week and I want to swim an hour each time and I want to add that on top of my training. 
how about you start with something that you know you can do, add in one 30-minute session of swimming, or say, I've seen uh, you know, the, the Stride podcasts and everything, I've listened to those, and I've listened to the different episodes about how you can maybe improve leg spring stiffness by adding in specific plyometrics, or you've seen a Steve Palladino um, article on adding in specific plyometrics uh, to help your leg spring stiffness. Instead of saying, I'm gonna do drills every single day, and I'm gonna do drills twice a day, and I'm gonna do, be doing nothing but jump roping um, all day, don't do that. Uh, do something like, I'm gonna add jump roping in, twice per week, and I'm gonna build up to um, you know, five sets of 20 reps for jump roping twice per week. That is a actionable goal. So identify the things from the previous slide, from refocusing, saying, what can you change? Create an actionable goal, and then write it down in a checklist. This is literally the easiest way to accomplish it. You have a goal, put it down in a checklist and say, okay, you know, I wanna hang it on my fridge. I wanna keep it as a note on my phone. I wanna save it as my phone's screensaver. So I am kind of realizing that this is an actionable goal that I can actually check off. I think checklists are absolutely huge um, using them in you know, your work-life balance, but specifically for regrouping after you refocus, checklists are huge. And then if you find that a piece of paper or interacting with the screen uh, to, um, you know, kind of check stuff off, doesn't keep you as motivated. The third thing and the most important thing here in terms of uh, making sure your actionable goals happen in your regrouping stage is having friends and accountability. So people that you can be a sounding board off of, people that will rely on you for accountability. Um, I think it's a huge thing to have other people that are sharing in your pursuit. So um, if you have, you know, maybe some friends that are group runners that you you train with, being able to say, hey guys, you know, I have gone through my past buildup and I have kind of identified that, you know, I wanna add in jump roping twice per week. Will you guys help me or will you keep me accountable? Make something fun out of it. So this is leaving a lot of the, um, you know, leaving a lot of the flexibility and the options up to you. But having friends who help you with accountability is so vital and it is so, fun to create a type of environment about that, that you can actually have fun with instead of seeing, um, you know, a goal that you set for yourself that isn't going to be actionable. It isn't going to be something that you can actually, um, you know, work off of having friends that help you with accountability is absolutely huge in the regrouping stage. So again, just uh, re restating that one more time, after you refocus, say, what can you change? Take that to the next part, say regroup. I want to create actionable goals, create a checklist have your friends help you with said checklists and said actionable goals. So um, the, uh, the the next stage I, I had for here was uh, re refocusing. And so I'll be able to talk a little bit about that um, a little bit later, but for now I'm gonna talk about the next portion here, which is uh, planning, executing, and reflecting. So planning for a half marathon, I'm gonna talk uh, about a specific data set from a half marathon into a marathon buildup, this athlete, uh, ran the US Olympic trials for the marathon, but also ran a half marathon six weeks before. So I'm gonna give you a practical way to go through a planning, executing, and reflecting stage for a half marathon and a marathon. So you can kind of see um, a, a way to sort of order information and go through this. So uh, planning for half marathon, this half marathon was in the middle of January. The goal marathon race was at the end of February starting to plan. So talking about planning, uh, identifying your goal, saying, where are you at now? What can you change and what information do you have? So planning your goal, 
uh, identifying this is what I'd like to do, saying, where are you now? So let's say this athlete's critical power is 216 watts, uh, which in this case it is. And what can you change? How can we actually improve over the course of you know, either the race or how can we actually improve over the course of the training block? And then what information do you have? So in terms of stride, we actually have a lot of information. We can uh, you know, look, if you're using stride, you can look at the power data that you have at different races, at different workouts, different percentages of your critical power. So using the information to help you actually on race day. So planning, what's the goal? For this athlete, it was PR, run under 78 minutes and 30 seconds for the half marathon. This athlete had a critical power of 216 watts, which is 4.85 watts per kilogram for this athlete. The uh, ideal time for this athlete was going to be uh, 116.30, so 76 minutes, 30 seconds. This would be a two-minute PR. That'd be absolutely great. Um, adding a little bit more data and a little bit more information in here, the athlete at this target had a running uh, effectiveness of 0.98, and the target power that was settled on um, using some of the calculators out there was 208 watts to 212 watts. So planning, we had a goal, we had information, and we uh, wanted to understand where we were at at the current moment. So again, having that critical power of 216 watts and then using all the information that we had, coming up with a very realistic goal of 208 to 212 watts. So this is a very narrow band. And let's see how this athlete did executing on race day. So. Again, the target power was 208 to 212 watts. What was the result? Well, the result was actually a massive PR, uh, 115.30, about uh, 210 watts. So again, the target power was 208 to 212 watts. Using the information in the planning, settled on the idea you know, based off of the critical power with the running effectiveness at 0.98 at about this target, that was the goal in mind, to settle on 208 to 212 watts, then executing on race day, ran right in the middle of that, literally dead smack in the middle um, for a shiny new PR from uh, about 118.30 all the way down to 115.30. So absolutely fantastic way to execute on race day. This uh, race was the Houston half marathon. So it's not very hilly, um, but there's a decent chunk of wind um, about at the, the nine mile uh, section here. So a great execution on race day based off of the actual um, data that went into the planning. So after planning, after executing on race day, reflecting. How is being in a race environment? For this athlete, they hadn't been in a race environment um, in, in a while. So it was a, a good effort six weeks out from a goal marathon race. What can you work on? Um, the, the, the biggest point here, uh, for this specific athlete. And the question here um, comes from, uh, you know, going all the way back to the uh, re refocusing uh, aspect from early, earlier in this presentation of what can you actually work on? What can you change? And so this athlete decided to start doing a little bit more core and stability work, uh, doing a little bit more hill work, because as you'll see, the race come race day was very hilly and prepping for certain conditions like running in the wind. So uh, in, in Boulder, we have the benefit of, uh, you know, having a ton of wind um, certain times of the day. So practicing running in hills, being okay with running in the wind and being able to dial in a power target specifically in the wind. So for uh, this next one, it's planning for a marathon. So using that same exact flow because we had great practice, planning, executing, and reflecting, what's the goal? 
the goal for this marathon, because it's the US Olympic trials, is to not blow up, is to run to the athlete's ability. So the athlete still has a critical power of 216 watts, which is 4.85 watts per kilogram. The target power here was 197 to 201, 197 to 201 watts. And so this athlete had great practice executing on race day, running in this super narrow band here. And so running 208 to 212 was pretty much the maximum ability thought on race day. The athlete ran right in the middle of that 210 watts uh, for, for a great uh, about three minute PR. And executing on marathon race day, we'll just ask the same exact thing. The athlete already had um, you know, the planning. They just needed to do the same exact thing they did on race day. How did this marathon go for the athlete? Well, they ran uh, 246.0 in the marathon. Uh, it was the athlete's second marathon. Uh, target power of 197 to 200 watts. Actual 199 watts. So that's two races in a row with two huge performances where the athlete ran exactly, based on the planning, exactly what they were expecting to because they executed perfectly on race day. Um, this athlete passed 80 people in the last half marathon of the US Olympic trials, pacing solely by power. So you can see how up and down the pace and the power is here. This is the uh, US Olympic trials court. So the uh, it, it, it's in Atlanta. It was super windy on race day, super hilly. Um, so just kind of relentless up and downs, as you can see here is a multiple loop course, but the athlete dealt with it really well, knew that probably shouldn't have too many spikes over this line here. You can see in, in the slide here, um, the, the spikes here, not going above critical power is the kind of vital thing to do, but the athlete ran right up on that line, um, and managed to have a fantastic performance again, running right in the middle of this, um, of this power target of 197 to 200, 201 watts based specifically on what the athlete did during training, what the athlete expected after executing during the Houston half marathon for a great performance. Uh, but the, the results here were absolutely fantastic, specifically in the last half. I can't stress this enough how awesome it is. Passing 80 people in the last half not changing anything, just running still straight at that power target. Then if you can see here right at the end, having this awesome uh, kick at the very end, the pace and the power going well above critical power at the very end, no blow up at all, super consistent, uh, dealing with really tough conditions. And so um, reflecting, uh, again, it's the same thing. How is being in a race environment? What can you work on? Asking these same questions here that, uh, you know, the athlete asked after, um, you know, the Houston half marathon and revisiting the, uh, the, the three R's earlier, so just saying, what can you work on? What can you change? And so um, for the next Olympic trials, uh, this athlete is uh, very excited and should do very, very well. Um, I, I, I think just go, going forward, having this type of experience with planning, executing and reflecting specifically on race day. So let's say, um, you know, we go all the way back here to the, the recover, the refocus and the regroup. Um, talking again immediately after a marathon in this case of what can we actually do to stimulate that recovery. This athlete was you know, very good of immediately being able to get uh, fluids and nutrition in the next day, walk around the next week. It's okay to take, you know, up, 
up to two weeks off for, the, for this athlete is what they felt comfortable with before starting to run again, but adding in things like walking or maybe going on a hike or doing things you wouldn't normally do to exercise that emotional component to help with recovery, to refocus, write down the goals, write down what they thought, what could they change, what couldn't they change, identifying that, and then regrouping, creating actionable goals, putting a checklist uh, you know, on your fridge, getting friends and accountability to help you with stuff, um, specifically will, uh, you know, help with going forward and improving off of that. So um, this was the full presentation here. I'd be absolutely glad to take some questions and hopefully answer them. Uh, Producer Gus, if you want to um, send any questions that we might have, I can talk uh, any, anything more about the, uh, the, the planning, executing, reflecting for race day, as well as uh, anything else about the Olympic trials or any other stride questions that you might have. I can make a special note that this was a lightweight female athlete. So the um, going back to the uh, you know stats for the athlete, they had a critical power of 216 watts. They have a, a watts per kilo at critical power of 4.85 watts per kilogram. Um, so this athlete still has uh, quite, quite a high watts per kilo, um, but this was a lightweight female athlete that ran the uh, Olympic marathon trials as well as the Houston half marathon for a huge PR. Um, and when, when we do look at performance like this, it is uh, important to note that, hey, yeah, you say, okay, I can go out and I can do 199 watts. For, for me, 199 watts is, um, you know, very, very, very easy. So typically my easy range for my wattage would go from 210 to 240. For this athlete, that's their marathon power because again, their, their watts per kilo are up there at 4.85 watts per kilogram. Um, so that's the thing that we should look at more for the specific type of performance. Um, we have a question here. Hi, questions. Much is spoken about carbon shoes and marathon races, but at uh, $200 plus, uh, way, way over 200 pounds, 200 euro, and a short life, is the debate overstated? Um, all right, so talking specifically about shoes, um, I'm a shoe aficionado. The people in the stride office um, sometimes have to you know, push aside the huge pile of shoes that I might have by my desk because um, I love talking about shoes. So um, much is spoken about them. Is the short, uh, so I'm trying to understand this question a little bit more, and a short life is a debate overstated. So maybe talking about the limited longevity of a specific type of carbon plated shoe. I'm of the opinion that, uh, you know, still, if a shoe feels comfortable for you and you don't feel like it's going to destroy your legs and you don't feel like, you know, your feet are getting beat up too much, um, how, like, how a shoe performs in a lab test via a study and then gets named maybe isn't all it should be about in terms of performance. If you feel great in a shoe, um, absolutely go for that. But the, there is definitely that trend of brands going towards carbon plated shoes, nylon plated shoes, um, a, a type of plate to help with the, you know, that, that, that curvature. There's plenty of studies out there. Um, but I think, yeah, maybe the debate's a little bit overstated. I still think the athlete has to execute on race day and shoes aren't going to run the race for you ever. Um, I, really do value um, having a cushion shoe in the marathon. In my first marathon, I wore a pair of shoes called the Audios Boost 3. And I loved that shoe at the time because it was the most poppy feeling. It was the most cushioned feeling shoe out there for me. And I had 
uh, you know, success doing workouts in it. But come race day, uh, once you get to 20 miles and you still have 10K left where you're supposed to pick it up, my legs just felt shot. And so I've had success with uh, training shoes and racing shoes that are a bit higher in stack height just because they help my legs not get as fatigued. So um, there's still room for plenty of debate for shoes that are, uh, you know, carbon plated or shoes that have, um, you know, special type of foam or makeup to them. But I still think that the athlete has to run. Um, and it is, you know, the athlete that achieves things on race day, not, not the pair of shoes, because we don't hang a medal around a pair of shoes neck. Uh, and especially if everybody is wearing all of the, the latest and greatest technology, then that playing field, uh, I think, is a lot more even and reasonable. Um, second part of this question, in actionable marathon training, what is the number one priority for you? For me, it is getting more sleep. Uh, and it, I think that that's something that probably everybody could say. I'd never hear an athlete, uh, you know, a friend that I talk to or you know, somebody I interact with, say, oh man, I got way too much sleep last night. I'm feeling so recovered and I'm way too ready to go for this session. It's usually, man, I slept terribly. I was just scrolling on my phone all night. I have no idea what's wrong. I drank coffee at 8 p.m. and then I couldn't sleep. Uh, I never hear anybody say that they got too much sleep. So for me, that's the number one thing always is uh, more recovery. Specifically, if you're asking about the number one thing that you can possibly do that's actionable, set a specific bedtime, throw your phone to the opposite side of the room or leave it outside your room. Um, don't, you know, don't bring that, that media necessarily into the environment that you're um, sleeping in. That's the number one actionable thing. Um, there are plenty of others that are very easy to add in, but if you're asking for the number one, adding more sleep, uh, I think is, is the best. Um, next question here, how to keep your target power in a race? I seem to forget about target power as soon as the gun goes. I think this is a great question because um, the, the the concept of pacing by power for people that are used to running by pace um, seems a little foreign. It seems a little hard to achieve. But the thing that I would encourage is do it in workouts. Get, get used to doing it. And then all of a sudden you have the uh, trust in the system and the trust in the actual metric of power that uh, it, it won't fail you on race day. The uh, biggest thing that I think when it comes to races, you have to have that specific preparation. When we go to, um, you know, expos, uh, you know, if I've, I've seen you at Boston, New York or Chicago, um, and you've talked to us in person, um, if you're using, uh, you know, you know, stride for the very first time on race day, it's probably not going to be as useful for you as if you had set a power target. You've uh, known your auto calculated critical power for a couple of months. You've run workouts based off that. Um, you know, I coach some athletes and the there is some hesitation initially with pacing stuff by power because people are so used to just using pace. Um, but once you do see that you don't blow up, you have a workout that you can specifically improve on next time. And then come race day, you're 100% sure of yourself because you've practiced this specific power target. There's no chance for you to throw a power target out the window because it's the only thing that you feel comfortable using. So um, I'm a big fan of actually using it for your training specifically, then come race day, it's just another run based off power. So that's how I keep power target in a race um, by actually using it during training. If we're talking about actually, you know, physically interacting with a watch that's talking to stride, um, my go-tos are either overall power, uh, lap power, or 10 second power. So 10 second power shows you if there's, you know, a big gust of wind 
or if you're running up a hill, um, you'll be able to adjust a little bit more in real time. I use the stride zones data field right now on the Garmin 645 or the 245, or I use our Apple Watch app. I'm a huge fan of our Apple Watch app because it's so customizable. Um, you can create a bunch of different screens for that, but physically interacting with the watch during the race, um, I prefer to see a overall snapshot. So let's say again, this athlete that we were talking about earlier, they knew they wanted to um, stick to 197 to 201 watts for the marathon race day. They averaged 199. So if I keep an overall average in there, I can look at my overall performance and I can say, okay, if I'm one watt low for my overall average, I might need to pick it up a little bit more, but then I might set a 10 second or a three second or a lap um, just to make sure those spikes um, kind of even out over time. So um, next question is, how often do you do a CP test? As an elite, I can imagine progress in CP is very small and incremental. Did you find your target power hard in the OTQ? So um, this is a great question, actually. Uh, so CP test, um, I have done it in the past. I rely on the auto critical power along with my normal training. Uh, right now, I think that there's a totally valid approach to doing the very, very close uh, hard workouts. But for me, I find that the auto CP is enough of a guide in my normal day-to-day -day training, and it reacts uh, enough um, for me when I do those hard test efforts. Um, it is very small and incremental, yes. Um, so I had an injury last uh, March into May. I came back uh, to running, and within a couple of we weeks, my CP was right in line with how I felt based off using the auto CP. Then once I did more races along the way, I found that it only got more and more accurate as I improved my fitness, but also I was able to prove my fitness. Um, and auto CP showed me that. Did you find your target power hard in the OTQ? So um, the marathon I ran, the 218 marathon in, I actually, uh, it was before I worked at Stride. And so I didn't have Stride. I knew what Stride was. And I was like, oh, this would actually be really helpful um, because the course I ran at uh, has a net downhill overall, but there are bumps in the way. Uh, so it was hard to keep a very even effort because the whole race pack would surge and then they you know, kind of go back and then surge again and go back. But um, if I had stride, then I would have been able to pace so much smoother um, than when I uh, you know, actually ran the OTQ. I credit a lot of my training um, to getting me there. Uh, I averaged like 125 miles a week for an entire like year stretch. Um, for my training block, I hit 140 miles a couple times and I hit 150 miles in one week twice. Um, so I did a ton of mileage. I did a bunch of long, hard workouts. And so that got me in shape to uh, run. But I think I really could have run a lot faster on the day because my last um, four miles, I slowed down like 15 seconds a mile average. And so I was riding that really fine line, um, you know, panicking like everybody at the end of a marathon thinking, oh no, I hit the wall. Um, and there, there's absolutely no way that I could uh, continue. But uh, finding, uh, you know, a target power in a future race, I did not find it hard at all. There's a bunch of great tools out there um, to, to help you find the, the target power that you should do. Um, so next question here is, thanks for the presentation, very informative. I'm thinking on switching to power, but I wanted to know how hard it is to change the mindset to this metric. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, like I was just talking about, I came from uh, only doing pace in the past, uh, and the transition for me was super easy. It, it clicked very, very quickly for me. Um, I think the thing that you'd just need to try if you have any hesitations is 
just jump in uh, for you know a two week stretch for your easy run. Uh, may, maybe do an easy run completely by feel saying, okay, I identify that this is a very easy effort. Look at the power um, afterwards. And then the next day, go out and try and replicate that effort by just following the power. So you'll find that following a number is very in tune with how you feel. And then maybe you want to see how power actually responds when you put more effort in. So maybe go and do uh, six times 30 second hills the next day and identify that when you run harder up a hill, the power goes up and that'll help um, help kind of solidify that relationship in your mind. And then maybe two days from then, do six times 30 seconds on flat and try and get close to that power number you hit on the hill and you'll see how much faster you have to run on a flat versus going up a hill. That'll tie that relationship in with you. And then maybe let's say the next week you do a long run and you say, okay, I'm going to keep it easy for the first 30 minutes. So go back to that easy power target that you identified. And then when it comes to um, you know the next hour of the run, maybe say, I want to add 10% onto that, uh, 5 to 10%. Add 5 to 10% watts on top of that. That'll feel harder. And then say, okay, I want to do the next 10 minutes 10% harder than that. And then you add that number on there. And that's a very easy way to understand the relationship of how you add power into uh, your training. I think that, um, you know, from being there and talking to a bunch of people um, over, you know, the years now, because um, it's it's coming up on uh, two years that I've been at Stride, and I, you just have to give yourself a chance and kind of jump in. And um, identifying with the current uh, climate, the current situation of, you know, maybe some training has been disrupted, I, and you don't have necessarily a goal race that is on the uh, you know very easy to see horizon. Now is a perfect time if you've ever questioned about switching your training to power. Try it. Just ju just do it. Uh, give it you know a week or two and just see how it feels. That's the best advice I can give for um, how to how to switch your your training to power. I think it's great. It keeps me uh, very honest with myself on recovery days. So I have a specific easy target that I set. I don't go above that because if I do, then my legs are going to feel like trash. And then on easy days, um, you know, I have that target. On hard days, I have that target. I'll train at a very specific percentage of my critical power. So if I'm doing a longer sustained threshold, something, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, 30 minutes plus, I run at a very specific percentage. So for me, that's 88 to 94%. And then uh, if I do, you know, threshold repeats that are three to four minutes long, I'll go, you know, 95 to 101% of critical power, something like that. And then if I'm doing some minute on, minute off, I set a kind of baseline that I want to run 340 watts at least for my, um, you know, my minute on. And then I'll set that kind of floor and then I'll say, I don't want to go above 370 though. And so then I'll set that ceiling. So those are some concrete specific examples. If you do want to switch, um, the mindset is the most important thing, yes. Uh, but now is a perfect time to do it, I think. So next question here. Hey, Evan, I did a half leading up to my marathon, which was to be on May 3rd. My race predictor was 327 watts for half, and I ran a four-minute PR in 136.18. Congratulations. Uh, I ran a nice negative split, and I'm wondering if my CP is accurate. What is your best recommendation for getting the CP super dialed in? I have 12 months on stride of many different types of workouts, like your case study. She finished strong, so she did really empty the tank. 
P.S. I'm aiming for a BQ in Chicago and need a sub 320, so I want to train to it. Jason, awesome question, Jason. Um, hope to see you in Chicago, fingers crossed uh, that, that we will be there. Um, so uh, what's your best recommendation for getting the CP super dialed in? The recommendation that we found from the very beginning uh, to uh, you know the present moment is having variety uh, for, for auto CP. Um, for a uh, race predictor in certain types of calculators, you can feed it different information. So if we go back to the athlete that I was talking about before, um, going off a critical power of 216 watts, just based off training um, and based off of the different calculators we used, the uh, you know best goal that we had was again that 197 to 201. And then the athlete um, you know actually did that in training. So we figured out after the half marathon that uh, she ran on uh, you know in mid January at Houston that running 210 watts for a half marathon should be able to run 197 to 201 watts and then we practice that for for marathon stuff and so um, you know her coach would give her workouts then we kind of dial in um, the the exact power that we should be um, with respect to those workouts so if the workout is like three times four miles at marathon um, because we're at altitude and the race is at sea level we're not necessarily going to just um, go out and try and run marathon pace on hilly terrain on dirt roads we're going to aim specifically for a power target if there's wind in our face because we're running towards the mountains we're not going to worry that all of a sudden the pace slows down because we have stride on the foot we can uh, identify that that extra air resistance is adding to the power target so we can get very specific very exact very exact in it um so uh, talking about getting the CP super dialed in, I really think variety is the is the biggest thing. So having specific hard efforts between uh, one to three minutes that are pretty intense, having a longer duration. So we, we say over an hour, um, preferably between 90 minutes and two hours, um, it is good for some little bit higher duration. And then the thing that's probably most critical is having a hard effort between the 20 to 30 minute range. And so if your training doesn't include this, um, you know, maybe do some time trials along the way of 20 to 30 minutes, see how that goes. Um, and your, your auto CP should get to, to, to where you um, feel it is accurate. So um, I guess, yeah, talking about that question, that's, uh, that's probably my best recommendation for getting the CP um, super dialed in. Um, next question here is, hello, could you please share some tips on how to reduce ground contact time? So um, I believe in the Stride Power Podcast, if you go to stride.com slash podcast and you go to uh, you know uh, the different episodes, I think it's episode three, Understanding Power Meter Metrics. Um, talk a little bit more in depth about that. Um, but there's a great piece from uh, Steve Palladino that I mentioned a little bit earlier uh, and talking about how to use specific plan metrics. And so ground contact time, um, you know, it's one factor in your running and how you're able to produce, uh, you know, speed and performance and power is reducing your ground contact time. That's usually, uh, it usually goes in the same trend in the same direction of you're, you're running faster. It's not necessarily better to reduce your ground contact time uh, in uh, you know just your easy runs, but at specific efforts um, using specific plyometrics to help your biomechanics, you can definitely find some trends along with reduced ground contact time. Um, 
So this next question here is, power is power, but is it really? The ability to produce power on different inclines varies. Yes. How can stride be used for race planning with inclines? Uh, is the constant average power strategy always best? Um, so for practical, um, practical guidelines, uh, I do believe that a constant average power is going to be the best to help you achieve the, the best possible performance on the day. And so, um, you know, there are a bunch of different considerations to take. Uh, if you average a even power that is below a threshold that prevents you from blowing up, as we saw earlier in the um, data set from the Olympic trials marathon for the athlete we talked about, at the very end, they're able to um, you know, kick it in. So they didn't exhaust themselves. They didn't have a negative uh, performance at the end because they didn't go over that certain threshold. So um, talking about uh, power uh, with race planning on inclines, that's what this athlete did specifically. Uh, Atlanta was literally nothing but uh, straight up and downs. So I ran um, the Peachtree 10K, which is a huge 10K, about 50,000 people for 10K. It's on the 4th of July in the US and it's in Atlanta. It's a great race. Um, I ran that race in 2018 and I was like, wow, this race is so hilly. It is just nothing but up and down. And it felt like a lot of up. Um, and I said, you know what? I I, I've run in Atlanta before. I, I think I know what I'm expecting. Um, so I, I trained for a lot of hills uh, before the trials, and there was nothing like, um, you know, Atlanta hills. The the amount of rolling up and down, and so um, pacing just by that that power average, I, I do still think that that is the best way to have your uh, optimal performance using the constant average power. I do acknowledge that when there are different environmental factors, like, uh, you know, the huge wind gusts that were in Atlanta or, um, you know, di different things going on in different situations, that it is okay to set a range. I'm, I'm more of a fan of ranges just for the specific cases we talked about earlier, um, having a range of like four watts. That's because um, I was very familiar with the training, the athletes very familiar with their own training as well. So um, being able to give yourself a range, but then be able to say, okay, we're running a marathon, we don't wanna go above your critical power because it doesn't make sense to go above your critical power during a marathon until you know maybe the last 500 meters or so, the last minute where you feel like you can kick it in. Um, but also setting, setting a floor. So usually if I'll give a race power target to somebody, we'll say, here's your target, what we think you can do, but here is your ceiling and here's your floor. You don't have to go below this number because you can, pretty much no matter what, go above this floor. This ceiling, you should not go above it. You can go above it, and you for sure probably will go above it at some point, but you should not go above this ceiling if you wish to have uh, as much success um, you know, staying between this little line here. Um, so I hope that answered the question. If not, um, if anybody else does have other questions, I have uh, two more here that I see in the feed. Um, please feel free to uh, drop them in the chat. Um, I, I find this part very, very fun, just being able to answer some questions. So um, second question here. Uh, sorry, I have another question. I'm a stride user. I was wondering for the easy runs, do you have a range percentage of CP that you keep power at? Is there a thing as too slow for easy runs? That's a great question. Um, so for me, I typically will run between 65 and 75% of my critical power for days I refer as easy runs. If I am doing a recovery run, 
I typically um, let myself go a little bit lower in that range, and that's all by feel. So I know I probably won't run below 200 watts. Again, it's that same concept of ceiling and floor. Um, so my my floor there would be uh, you know about 200 watts. My ceiling would be about 250 watts, just for me. So I know that anything in there, I'm getting the job done. I'm you know I'm stimulating my body. I'm getting practice of the skill of running from a mechanical standpoint. I'm circulating my blood. Um, you know, depending on the duration, I might have different adaptations that are also going on. But uh, for, for me. I don't think there's anything necessarily too easy for easy runs, um, but for for me, I find that 50 watt band between 200 to 250 to be a fine uh, area for me to to feel freely to go in between. So um, for me, that's usually around 65 to 75 percent of CP. I won't usually go above 75 percent of CP because that just feels a little bit um, too you know up tempo, too purposeful. Uh, but going below, I don't think there's, a, there's anything necessarily too easy. And I will also say uh, in my recovery from the trials, um, I, you know, have run a 218 marathon. I've run, you know, in the 1420s for 5k, I've run 3009 for 10k. In my recovery for the trials, I'm doing minute on, minute off walk running. Um, so there's no sort of ego coming back. Uh, it's all focused on, um, just being as recovered and as easy intro back to running as possible. So uh, a thing is too easy. Um, some people might say, oh, you know, um, I don't feel humble enough to be able to walk, run, and alternate that. I, you know, if I am running, I'm just going to go straight running. I'm not going to do anything else. Well, I think that, you know, there's nothing too easy. So giving my, uh, you know, shedding a little bit of light, I'm doing minute on, minute off uh, walk running as my comeback from the trial. So I hope that answered that question. Um, last one I see here in the queue is, thanks for this. I'm new to using Stride. I hope this isn't a dumb question. No dumb questions. Uh, uh, but how does heart rate relate to this? Yeah, that's a great question. I have a Sunto 5 and both and have both heart rate and power. Do I ignore the heart rate monitor? Um, I don't think you have to ignore heart rate. Um, I'm not a heart rate expert necessarily. Uh, so I cannot give a ton of guidance for how you should train by heart rate. Um, but if you're using a, you know, optical wrist-based heart rate monitor, I'd probably side more towards the side of a chest-based heart rate strap, um, just for reliability. Uh, some heart rate monitors, uh, that are wrist-based and optical have some problems with cadence locking. So, um, some people might be familiar with, uh, you know, in a race, it's a pretty flat um, little line, and then all of a sudden it goes up to something that's coincidentally right around your cadence, and it, that's not right. Uh, it's just locking in your cadence, but when you have a heart rate strap monitor, that might be a little bit more accurate. So um, looking at heart rate, I don't personally use it in my training. I, I used to um, use, use a heart rate strap a couple of years ago. But uh, I would, you know, diligently dive into the heart rate training and take my resting heart rate in the morning. I'd look at, uh, you know, my max heart rate that I did a test every couple of, um, you know, months for. And I would run on some easy days at, um, you know, what's called like a heart rate reserve. So taking your max heart rate minus like, uh, you know, your resting heart rate in the morning and then having a certain range to play in. I found it very complicated and very confusing. Um, you know, I read about it and I heard a couple people using that type of strategy, but I just found it not fun. Like it, it was, it was not fun for me to train. 
And when I was training and racing at that time, I didn't want to not have fun. I wanted to enjoy what I was doing, not, you know, constantly stare at my watch and say, oh, no, I'm like one beat over. I have to like basically slow down to almost a walk now to get it um, average back down. Uh, so for heart rate stuff, um, again, I'm not uh, not necessarily a expert on that. But um, in my personal case, I found it not as fun to use uh, for, for stride and power. Um, I have a little bit more of a range and I can feel that range a little bit more. Um, but if you have a heart rate monitor and it's something that you want to look at, don't, don't feel the pressure or the need to, to throw it out there. So, um, thanks Arlene for that question. Uh, what do you look at during the race? So instant power, lap power, average power. Um, my, my normal setup, if I'm doing a race, uh, I'm either using a Garmin 645 or a 245 and I'll use the stride zones data field. I will have my 10 second power on the top and I'll have my lap power on the bottom. That is what I typically do. Um, I can also set um, you know, another screen if I'm curious about the distance or the overall timer. Um, I'll also put stride zones on there. So my lap power will show up on a screen along with the timer. So I'm very, um, very simple uh, when it comes to, to my setup. I find that really preferential. If I'm running a workout, typically I like to run um, you know, with the Apple Watch, uh, the, the Stride Apple Watch, I find that a great experience. If you go to the um, Stride Apple Watch app and you look at the uh, workouts that are there for you to select from, if you don't have any of your own customized workouts, there's one called Evan's Workout. So um, I like that little uh, Easter egg, almost, almost like an Easter egg thrown in there. Um, but I, I usually use the Apple Watch app if I want to have a little bit more data to see. So um, maybe I'm working on you know, keeping my cadence up so I can have the Apple Watch app show me my, um, you know, lap power and 10 second power and average cadence for that lap, um, as well as my pace and my distance and my heart rate and my ground contact time on one screen. Then I go to two more screens and I have seven metrics on each screen as well if I want to do that. But usually I keep it pretty simple. So um, that's what I typically look at during the race. Um, another question here. In all my marathons, I have bonked in the last six miles with dropping cadence and power and pace. How do you personally approach this part of the race? Um, I approach it uh, with, you know, kind of like uh, scars in my mind from, from some of the past races, but also some, uh, you know, success in my past races. So the, the, the first marathon I ran, like I mentioned, um, my last eight miles, I um, bonked super hard. My best marathon ever, I still slowed down quite a bit in the end. Um, and then this uh, past marathon um, that I did, uh, I didn't run the last five miles because my legs were too messed up to run. And so um, I'm sure there are better people to ask uh, for this. But the one thing I'd say is uh, maybe some strategies to get get over uh, the, the, this type of you know wall or the bonk is identify in training is your power target realistic? So if your power target isn't necessarily re realistic um, and you haven't trained to that, then maybe you should lower your power target or maybe you should practice. Um, if you're doing something like a two to two and a half hour long run, maybe the last 30 to 45 minutes, you should run at a closer percentage to actual race power to start practicing um, that specific introduction of that race power to a specific scenario in your training. So while you're already fatigued, how do you actually practice running at your race power? Um, for dropping cadence and power uh, and pace, it just yeah sounds to me 
like the last six miles, um, you know, maybe your body wasn't prepared to necessarily um, go to, uh, you know, that place for uh, sustaining that power. Um, nutrition might also be something. Uh, so talking a little bit more about the, the trials, uh, the Atlanta Track Club put on the US Olympic trials and they did a fantastic job. Every uh, couple of miles you had your own personal fluid bottle. And so fueling is a huge important thing too. So if you don't usually practice fueling um, during your workouts, that might be something that you can add in your workouts to feel uh, more comfortable come race day, uh, specifically fueling to help your body handle that uh, type of intensity and that type of load on race day. So for me, um, I like to fuel like the most minimally I will fuel is um, a couple of drinks of uh, I, I use a type of uh, fluid called Morton, M-A-U-R-T-E-N. And it's a powder that mixes into water and it forms what's called a hydrogel. And so it typically has a little bit more calories that you can get in because it splits the type of uh, fuel sources that it gives you. Um, so it actually turns into a uh, gel in the stomach and it helps you uh, just have a little bit more, um, you know, sustained uh, nutrition over over time. So um, I, I like that, but practicing fueling in training and practicing uh, fueling and racing is also, um, you know, an important part to prevent a bonk. You actually have to teach your body, hey, um, you know, and teach your body is a very open term, uh, but you have to, you know, practice that actual type of, uh, fueling during training to have success on race day as well. So um, cool. I think that's all the time that I've allotted. I really appreciate everybody for tuning in. If you have any questions, you can totally always email us at support at stride.com. Uh, you can also find this as a audio clip uh, on our podcast that I have a ton of fun uh, doing. The podcast is great. If you haven't subscribed already, please go to stride.com slash podcast. You can find a link to um, any of the podcasts that you probably listen to or any of the podcast streaming services that you listen to there, um, or you can just go to your favorite, um, favorite podcast app and type in stride, uh, S T R Y D and it should show up right there. Press subscribe, turn on notifications, whatever you want to do, and then download all the past episodes and listen to them. Cause there's a ton of great interviews, a ton of great uh, training discussion there. Um, please feel free to follow us on social media at stride running. We're always, uh, trying to put out more uh, community involvement posts, uh, you know, whether we're on uh, Twitter or Instagram, the Facebook community is great. So you can go to facebook.com slash stride community. Um, it's a great group uh, there, but I'm so excited to wrap up this webinar. Uh, this was for the love of running part three. Um, again, my name is Evan. We'll be back next week with a couple more episodes. If you want to find out how to be notified about these, please uh, go, go to our um, website and sign up for the newsletter and we'll be able to send out some more information there uh, or you can always go to our social media. We'll put some links there as well. So thanks everybody for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. We'll be back next week. Hope everybody is staying safe and healthy. Um, if you have any things you're curious about hearing from uh, for one of these future webinars, please feel free to send it our way as well. We will uh, try to include that in the future. For now, this was webinar three. Have a great rest of your Friday, everyone. Bye-bye.